Things were going so well. I had the world at my fingertips. Kingdoms revered me. Nations admired me. Governments worshipped me. And why wouldn't they? I had the one thing they spent all their energy trying to obtain. The willing submission of every person on the planet. You see, everyone on earth was my slave. I ruled them all, and they all knew it. Of course, none of them were happy with this arrangement, but what difference did that make? They, had all, they all had to do what I wanted, or I would take from them their most prized possession, their lives. All the sane ones were terrified of me and did whatever was necessary to avoid me. I controlled them like puppets, and no matter how much they wanted to be free of my rule, there was nothing they could do to escape it. The Christian scriptures in the book of Hebrews, I think it was, lay out the bliss of my position in words of utter euphoria. Through fear of death, they were subject to lifelong slavery. Oh, those words still give me chills. Raw power, unshakable authority, complete domination, and with nothing anyone could do to stop me. Being the rather crafty genius that I was, I had strung together insurmountable evidence against them to show them that I really owned them all. And the best part was that I used the Christian scriptures to do it. The Christians confidently speak of their scriptures as inspired and authoritative, and so it only made sense that if their own scriptures gave them to me, how could they argue? The book of Romans really did all the work for me, because right in chapter 3, it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I don't really care much for God and his glory, but I know how he works. He had created these peons in his image and would receive glory from them when they chose to rule his creation as he himself would, when they chose to reflect his character in the way that they lived and in the worship that they offered back to him. But every one of his creatures had turned their backs on him. They had chosen their own way to rule instead of following his. And as a result, none of them brought him the praise he deserved. Now, all by itself, this verse wasn't enough to build my case. It was a helpful piece, but still just one piece. I needed something more, something that would cement my position as absolute ruler over mankind. And it was as if Paul's sole task was to hand me my case on a silver platter. I only needed to continue reading through Romans a few more chapters in order to find it. The verse that gave me all my power and authority. It's found in chapter 6, and it's short and to the point. For the wages of sin is death. Here's where everything fell into place for me. The logic was flawless. There was no escaping it. For if everyone has sinned, and what you get for your sin is death, then everyone belongs to me. Oh, I'm sorry. Haven't I introduced myself yet? My apologies. My name is Death, and I am the ruler over everything and everyone. It's been this way, actually, ever since the fall in the garden. You know the story. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The Lord God's plan seemed to be that his creatures were free to enjoy his blessings and to rule his creation as long as they stayed close to him and that they took their cues from him. They could be in authority as long as they remained under his authority. 
But when my scheming partner convinced the first couple to decide for themselves what was good and what was evil instead of relying upon God to determine that for them, guess whose authority they placed themselves under? That's right, mine. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, in that one act of independence, mankind placed more trust in the way I proposed they rule the world than in the way God proposed. And as a result, I was put on the throne, and I've been reigning ever since. Because of their sin, God's perfect world became dark, cruel, and oppressive, just the way I like it. For thousands of years, that's how things stayed. Men and women lived their lives in hiding, ashamed of the things they had done and of who they were, hiding from God, from one another, even hiding from themselves. The world was plunged into darkness with, with its accompanying shame, guilt, and fear. God specifically called a people to be his means through which he could restore his blessing to the world, but they were just as messed up as everybody else. Just being his chosen people did very little to rid them of the darkness that had made its home so comfortably within their hearts. You see, my kind of darkness has a way of getting deep within people, not just in the world. And so despite their belief that they were doing God's will, I still held them in my grip through countless kings and covenants and promises. I kept them oblivious to the fact that they were in need of rescue every bit as much as the nations around them were. That the goal for them as a people wasn't just that God would get them out of Egypt, but that he was determined to get the Egypt out of them. But they resisted him at every turn. And so I live virtually uncontested and unchallenged. In fact, I grew quite confident that there was nothing any of them, not even God, could do to stop me. And then one day, I'll never forget the day, I started hearing reports that some of those nearest my door were being healed of their diseases. That others whose lives demons had been destroying were being set free. That a light was shining into my dark world and filling it with hope. That there was a man preaching forgiveness of sins to anyone who came to him and claiming that he had authority to do so by performing signs and miracles. Now, you need to understand something. No one, I don't care who they are, has the authority to just waltz in and tell someone that their sins are forgiven. Once someone has sinned, they're mine. End of discussion. This had been made abundantly clear. But here was a man who didn't seem to care about the rules, who was stealing people away from me, taking those on the brink of death and giving them life, confronting the darkness in their hearts and filling them with light instead. The entire thing was appalling. I had even heard rumors that he was giving life to some who had already died. Absolutely not. You just can't act as if death isn't the end. Death is always the end, the end of life and the end of hope. Once I come knocking, seeking what's mine, there's nothing that can be done. This is my world. And yet here is a man walking around like he owns the place. This man, Jesus, I think was his name, had no regard whatsoever for the way things worked. By his very presence, he dismissively undermined me in everything I'd worked so hard to build. 
You know, but the worst part was that he began winning the hearts of the people. Those most in my grip, whose lives were consumed with the most darkness, the most shame, and the most fear, came flocking to him. I couldn't believe my eyes. Their love for him began growing stronger than their fear of me. And I was losing them. Lots of them. I've never in all my days seen anything like it. Things were starting to unravel, and quickly. And I knew that if it continued, I would lose every last one of them. And so I decided right then and there that I needed to put an end to all of it. The only question was how. Solving that riddle proved to be a bit of a challenge. But I'm not one to hold back from doing the hard work of keeping myself in absolute control. And so it was only a matter of time before I settled on a solution. You see, I wasn't the only one who was threatened by this man. The religious leaders were losing followers too. You know, those guys who turned God's laws into a way of making a name for themselves by their righteousness and then lording it over others they felt weren't as righteous as they were. Yeah, those guys also wanted Jesus gone. He was ruining their way of life by constantly telling them that they too needed to repent of their sins and trust in him for salvation, that they too were in my grip and needed him to grant them new life. Oh, how they despised him for even suggesting such a thing. So it was pretty safe to assume that the work my accomplice set out to do wouldn't prove all that difficult. In fact, he pulled off a stunning performance. He got one of Jesus' own followers to betray him, another one to deny even knowing him, the religious leaders to falsely accuse him, the Roman governor to wash his hands of him, and the people, blinded as they were by the genius of a mob mentality, to angrily chant for his death. It was the perfect plan, and it was carried out to perfection as well. And so I got rid of him. Now, I don't really know where my head was at the time because as I look back, I now realize what a mistake it all was. But to be perfectly honest, I was already in an impossible situation. I felt like I'd been backed into a corner with no way out. There was nothing I could do to stop this man. He wasn't afraid of me, not even a little bit. His humble confidence was unsettling. His demeanor was unnerving. His compassion was terrifying. And the more I tried threatening him, the more he just kept on loving everyone. I've never witnessed anything like it. And I knew I was in trouble. I couldn't let his healing and his miracles and his forgiveness continue. But the only power I had was to take away life. So I took away his. I orchestrated the plan to end Jesus's life. And I actually pulled it off. We had him nailed to a Roman cross and literally suffocated the life right out of him. And that, as far as I knew, was the end of the matter. Or at least it was the end of him. I spent the first few hours of my apparent success merely trying to catch my breath. I knew I had dodged a real bullet, that I'd narrowly escaped the first real threat to my empire, but now things were good once again. Jesus had become just another statistic, proof that in the final analysis, death always prevails. I rested with confidence at just this point for a couple of days.
But on the third day, I started hearing reports about Jesus again. At first, I paid no attention to them. After all, no rumors would prove as threatening as the ones I had just dealt with. The trouble was, I soon discovered, that these reports were far worse than all the others combined. Some women were claiming that Jesus wasn't in the tomb his followers had placed him in, but that an angel appeared to them at its entrance and told them that Jesus was alive. Alive! The man I killed, alive. Impossible, you say? Yeah, I thought so too. But then the lights went on. Something inside clicked. And for the first time, I saw what I never expected to see. Jesus took a trick right out of my playbook. He beat me at my own game. And the world as I knew it came crashing down. Looking back, I honestly do not know how I could have been so foolish. Death was my game. I was the one who conquered by taking away life. But because I only saw what I wanted to see and was blinded by my own ambitions and dreams, I forgot one minor detail, a detail that would usher in a kingdom that has no end and bring salvation to billions of people. You see, I ruled everyone because everyone had sinned. And what you got for your sin was death. In other words, I got to claim the lives of all those who sinned. For as long as anyone could remember, that had been everyone. So as far as I was concerned, I simply got to claim the lives of everyone. But what I had never encountered was a human being utterly resistant to sin. My right-hand man and I couldn't get Jesus to cave even in the face of our strongest and most advanced temptations. The seduction we so easily lured Israel with in the wilderness, Jesus wouldn't budge on when also in the wilderness we tempted him in the same ways. He seemed to be driven by something other than defining good and evil for himself. In fact, he seemed entirely unconcerned with his own agenda, his own will, or his own way. And if that weren't enough, he was even too reported to have said, Truly I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. His entire life was one of perfect submission to his father's will. He never once stepped out from under God's authority. And so sin had nothing in him to grab onto. And therefore, I had no right to claim his life. I couldn't touch him, but I did touch him, and I claimed his life, and that was the beginning of the end for me. You see, if death is the consequence for breaking the rules, as the Christian scriptures so clearly state, and I broke the rules, then the day I killed Jesus was the day I died. I broke the rules. It pains me to have to admit this, but his was a life that I was not allowed to claim. Here was a man whose life only brought glory to God, whose very presence challenged the kingdoms of this world because his kingdom advanced not through fear of death, but through love of life. Jesus defeated me by allowing me to defeat him. And three days later, by raising Jesus from the dead, God declared to the entire world that I was not allowed to do that. 
and on that day publicly declared that death was no longer on the throne. Jesus was. And that death is no longer the end. It's now the beginning. There is life now on the other side of death. And it is a life literally worth dying for. This is, after all, while you are all here celebrating Holy Week. Because the fact of the matter is that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead for himself alone. He was raised so that others could enter into his new life with him, could be reborn with him, and could be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And so I guess to be fair, I should bring to your attention two other passages in the New Testament that speak to this issue. Passages that just so happen to lie right between the two passages from Romans I quoted earlier. Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And how exactly does that work, you ask? Paul spells it out two chapters later. Through faith in Jesus, one becomes united with him. Romans 6, 4 and 5 says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And that's the good news of the gospel. That the new life God granted Jesus can also be yours if you join your life with his. If you follow Jesus into death, he will raise you with him to new life. If you allow him into your darkness to deal with those things that control your life, that have brought you shame, that cause you fear, he will by his spirit put them to death and set you free. No more darkness, no more shame, no more fear, no more death. Only life and life abundantly. And so I suppose it's only fitting to draw your attention to one final New Testament passage, a divinely inspired insult, no less. That's right. As Paul brings the book of 1 Corinthians to a close, he reviles my very character slandering my once powerful name by taunting me of the hopelessness of my situation. I dare say a passage like the following best captures the spirit of those fearless Christians all across the world today facing persecution. They understand that those who are opposing them ultimately can do nothing to prevent the spread of the gospel because they know that death no longer has any power over them. And I'll bet that your faith too will increase as you learn to say with them and with Paul, O oh death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let it be so. And all God's people said, Amen.